Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience, creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly, and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y.com, to start customizing your furniture now. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today we're talking baking. Later in the show, Cheryl Day will share her secrets to delicious desserts. 
Her journey to become a true Southern baker wasn't always straightforward. When she moved to Savannah, her customers said her cupcakes were not sweet enough. When we first opened, I was making a Italian meringue buttercream on my cupcakes, and they were not well received <laughs> at all. How does a Southerner tell you they don't like your cupcake? <laughs> Is it subtle? Um, I didn't think it was that subtle, actually. It was kind of like, you know, what do you use exactly? <laughs> and, you know, there's the old saying, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and if you live in the South, you know what that means. <laughs> First up, it's my interview from 2019 with computational scientist L. O'Brien, who programs computers to write recipes. L, how are you? I'm doing excellent. How about you? Good. This is an interesting segment uh, because I've spent my whole life trying to optimize recipes like the chocolate chip cookie. You wrote something called Baking the Most Average Chocolate Chip Cookie, which mm -hmm. is something quite different. And so you use three totally different approaches. So, so what are those three mathematical slash scientific approaches? Sure. One of them is that um, I got together about, it was about 200 chocolate chip cookie recipes that I scraped off the internet. And the first approach was that I just tabulated all of the ingredients that were used and I just averaged them, just a straight up average like you learn in math class in school. But that came up with some really odd things like 0.002 cups applesauce or 0 0.005 teaspoon white pepper. So how does that approach end up with weird ingredients like that? Yeah, so one thing is that um, I found that it's actually pretty common that people like to throw in a little secret ingredient, like the applesauce or the pepper, and I suspect that comes down to the feeling of owning your cookie, you know, that this is secret, that this is yours. And so I would find that maybe one out of every, you know, the 200 recipes would have just a pinch of black pepper. And so when you average it over 200 recipes that don't contain it and one that does, you end up with a really, really small number. And so when you came up with this recipe, you said it had 60 ingredients. So, yeah, I really so did went, you actually yeah. make that recipe or did you cut out some of the, the smaller amounts? No, I mean, I did. I went to the supermarket. It cost me like $75 to pick up all the ingredients. I did. And then I got like tweezers and um, <laughs> little tiny pipettes so I could get some of the right amounts. There was one casualty and it's that I did forget to put in a marshmallow, but there was nothing intentionally left out. So you, you baked it, and, and what happened? You know, it was a surprisingly good cookie. Um, I didn't taste most of the weird ingredients. Like, every now and then, I'd kind of get a mouthful where I was like, huh, I am tasting a little something unusual. But for the most part, I really didn't taste anything that weird. I, I was pretty happy with it. Uh, okay, so number two, the predictive text cookie. How does that work? Sure. So predictive text, um, the best example of that is like what you use on your phone when it suggests words for you. So it just tends to look at like, oh, you know, these words tend to go together. Like I say, I'm going to the store. And so it just learns like, you know, those words tend to follow one another or put the chocolate chips in the bowl. So it'll learn those words tend to follow one another. Um, and so just by basically using all of the recipes that I have and just training this model to learn, starting with one word, what's the next most likely word, um, then I can get it to produce recipes, just spit them out. 
And how how good was this cookie versus the mathematical average cookie? Ooh, ooh, it was it was lacking. Um, so the recipe that we ended up with had it was something like four cups of shortening, and then a whole bunch of brown sugar, just a stupid wait, amount wait, wait, of brown wait. sugar. Four cups of shortening. Yeah. And, and how much flour? <laughs> it's a lot. Um, I don't remember the flour count, um, but not enough. The ratio was really off. So did, what did it look like when it came out of the oven? Did it spread all over the place? or? Oh, my God, yes. It was just this big, like it browned nicely because there was so much brown sugar, um, but it just spread. It was absolutely right. enormous. It did cook. It kind of held its shape, but it tasted awful. I mean, it really tasted like <laughs> shortening. Gee, I, I can't imagine why. Okay, so, so the mathematical average did pretty well. The predictive text cookie was kind of a disaster. And then, then you moved on to the third, which is really interesting, called the neural network cookie. How do you do that? So um, a neural network is a piece of AI and you know, artificial intelligence. And so it, it's a bit of software or an algorithm that takes a whole bunch of text that I put in, and it learns the sequence of letters. Um, so it, just by giving it a list of recipes, it learns how to format a recipe. It learns that it always starts with a list of ingredients. It has a rough idea about how long the instruction should be and about how long the ingredient list should be. So it's, it's uncanny, but the reason why it's so often wrong is that it doesn't have any kind of concept of what a cookie is. It doesn't know what the end product is. And so it has no problem telling you to add sugar four times. It has no sense of ratios of the proportions that things ought to be in. It'll constantly leave out key ingredients like eggs. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a creative spaz. So, so this is supposed to be deep learning, but obviously of the three approaches, this may have been the worst. <laughs> it was certainly the least like a cookie. I, I think it's a very compelling technology, but the important thing is that it doesn't have any sense of what a cookie ought to be or what ingredients need to be in the cookie to give it that true cookiness. It just doesn't get that. It's completely out of its sense of understanding of the world. So you, you use three techniques, the mathematical average, the predictive text, the neural network. Uh, what you're really trying to do, I think, if I can pull way back, is... There's an argument about the brain, right, and whether the brain is just a computer and that at some point in time, everything the brain does can be replicated by a computer. Other people would say the brain is more than a computer. It can make leaps beyond just computations through some sort of creative process or the soul or whatever you want to call it. So Big Blue with chess, because chess is so highly regulated as a process, was able to beat a human. I wonder if what you're trying to do with food, maybe food, there is more art to food than there is art to chess, and it's not purely computational. Is that possible? Yeah, well, I think it's both. I do think that computers can be creative, but the sense of appreciating what's been created by a computer is something that only a human can provide. So I think the computer is endlessly creative in that it can give me a thousand new chocolate chip recipes, but the sense of value is something that I impose as the human to say, this is, you know, you're sure you can make me a thousand, you can make me 10,000 chocolate chip cookie recipes, you can do that in a minute, but only some of them are worth my time. Well, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit better about my choice of profession at this point. Um, a little bit. Elle, thank you so much. I've, I've, I've learned a little bit about science uh, and predictive technologies. And could you send me your recipe for the average chocolate chip cookie? We'll try it at Milk Street and I'll let you know. Yeah, thanks so much. 
That was computational scientist L. O'Brien. Her article for The Pudding is called Baking the Most Average Chocolate Chip Cookie. Over the years, Sarah Moult and I have answered dozens of your baking questions. Here are a few of our favorites. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Samantha from Sacramento. How can we help you today? Okay, well, I love the taste of sourdough, and a neighbor gave me a sourdough starter that's over 30 years old. It makes good pancakes. It's just not that funky. I'm pretty disappointed. I'm wondering if there's a safe way to make a sourdough starter funkier. All sourdough starters are different, right? So they all have different flavors. So you just happen to have one that maybe is not funky enough for you. Um, So you could start all over again. There are a few things we've learned, though, which does make uh, sourdough funkier. Different flours, like whole grains, flours, like whole wheat or rye, will give you more flavor because of the complex carbohydrates in them. If you don't feed your sourdough as often, it makes it a little more acidic and a little funkier. Okay. It's like, you know, you have a dog that needs to lose weight. You have to just not feed them as much. And also the liquid that rises to the top of the starter is really sour. So if you really want to make the starter more sour, mix that right back in to the bread. The only thing that's typical of bread baking is the slower the ferment, the more flavors developed. So when I make um, pizza dough, for example, it'll sit in the fridge for three days Then I'll take it out and let it warm up for a couple hours. When you take out part of that sourdough, the starter, and you make a new recipe, when you make the new recipe, if you give it three days or two days in the fridge, then take it out and let it finish rising. That long period of slow fermenting, slow fermenting is a way of building flavor. So those are a few things. But ultimately, you could just go buy a starter and you might like the flavor better. And Sarah's I'm completely out of my league here. I have to be honest, I've never made sourdough bread, and I don't know all the ins and outs. Just trying a different starter would be the first thing I would do just to see if you like it. But the long ferment and using some more complex flours like whole wheat, rye, et cetera, that will add a lot of flavor. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, make sure it's not been sitting there at room temperature for months, though, because rye flour and whole wheat flour do go bad, go off pretty Ranted. quickly. Yeah. yeah. So you want to make sure it's, oh, it's good. Oh, okay. Okay, that's good to know. So I was wrong in assuming that since the starter is so old that it would be funky, I could get a new one that's funkier, possibly? Well, sourdoughs are like people. You know, they all have a personality. So it just depends on the starter. Yeah, try a new one. All right, Samantha, thank you. Okay, that's great to know. Thank you so much. Okay. Our pleasure. Such an honor to talk to you both. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Jill. Hi, Jill. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Crown Point, Indiana, which is near Chicago. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. How can we help you? My question concerns the quality of sugars. You and Sarah talk frequently about the quality of spices and definitely the quality of of flowers, but nobody ever really talks about sugar. And when you go into Hmm. the store, the price of the sugar from the local vendor is usually half the price from what you would call, I don't know, the quality vendor, which in in the Midwest is going to be domino. Is there really a difference? That's an excellent question. I remember when I got started in the 1970s, it was a big controversy about beet sugar versus cane sugar. And so I bought beet sugar and cane sugar and couldn't tell the difference in baking. And then I started using palm sugar and coconut sugar and sort of unrefined sugar, like at Whole Foods, for example, they don't sell 
Domino, they sell something that's less refined. And I use that all the time in baking by weight. Um, and I find there's no difference in my baking. So the short answer is, if you're talking about white processed sugar, I don't think you're going to find a difference in your baking. However, for flavor reasons, coconut sugar, other kinds of sugar, palm sugar, those add a lot of flavor, and they're a nice substitute for light and dark brown sugar, for example. But I don't believe, and I know there's some studies that have been done on this, that the brand of white sugar matters in baking, right? I don't think one is more hygroscopic. That is, it attracts liquid more than another. I think it's pretty much the same. Yeah. I think what is pretty true is Domino is cane sugar, and most of the rest of the stuff is beet. Yeah. I haven't noticed any difference no. myself. I'm pretty sure that most bakers do not care. I'm not the kind of baker who's going to make, you know, the sugar whips on top of things. I just bake bread and I bake cookies and the occasional cake and brownies and things. And, you know, you go out of your way to buy the good stuff. And I just stared at the two kinds of sugar and just wondered, hmm, does this make a difference? So let me ask the question. You intrigue me with this coconut and palm mm -hmm. sugar. When you say it's got more flavor and it can substitute for light or dark sugar, does it have fewer calories of sugar? I'm diabetic, so this oh. makes a difference to me. I can't answer that question. I would doubt it has less. Okay. I use it in my coffee, for example. It just has a lot more flavor. It's very dark brown. It tends to be a little finer. I don't know what the calorie count is. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to solve your toughest kitchen mysteries. Give us a ring anytime. Our number, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ashley Tucker calling from New York with a question about frosting layer cakes. That was the most succinct call yeah. we've ever had get an a in plus the history of Milk Street. In caller. Okay, what's the question? <laughs> so my question is that I'm always surprised to find that recipes for layer cakes don't give much guidance on how much frosting to put between the layers right. and on the top layer. So that you're sure that what you have left for the sides is a good amount for even frosting because often you don't know till you've served up that first place whether you've done a good job of balancing the amount of frosting between the layers and the outside. I was wondering if you have any advice for portioning out frosting or thoughts on why recipes kind of leave you on your own for this part. It's a good question. I was just frosted a birthday cake for a youngster recently, and I had the same conundrum. And so what I did was cheat on the filling. I mean, I was very, very circumspect about that because I wanted to have enough for the sides and top. So I underfrosted between the layers. I have on other occasions made 50% more frosting to start with. That's my favorite oh. answer because I love frosting. Some people... Some people, it's all about yeah. the cake. I'm right there with you, Chris. Yeah. I love the frosting. So I, I would add 50% more to the original recipe for the frosting. That'll solve the problem. Well, you know, I think, first of all, people who don't tell you how much frosting and how much to put on each layer don't do a good job writing the recipe. If you look at serious, you know, authors, cookbook authors, they're going to tell you. I think make a lot more frosting because, you know, it's, you know, you know <laughs> what like it's like? <laughs> it's like pie pastry recipes are designed for professionals. So they never mm -hmm. give you enough pie dough if you don't roll it out well. And so you're always left with, you know, one side that's a little short. So I always make 
let's say for one pie, a cup and a half of flour, not a cup or a cup and a quarter. So I would do the same thing. I just make more crazy. The only other thing I would add is it's a really good idea to do that crumb coating thing. Yeah, that's a good. Idea. Where you put a very yeah. thin layer on first and sort of let it set, and then you go back and put more on. What's the worst that could happen? Is you have leftover frosting? Yeah. Is that a problem? No, not remotely. I like the more is better. But that's a very good question, though. I've, yes, Ashley. I have to say, Sarah also impugned my professional integrity because I'm thinking back to all those cake recipes I've written over the years. I don't think I ever said how much to put. On each layer. No. No. Well, you really should. I know. Go back and do it now. i got to correct it before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just so surprising because bakers are so precise about everything else, and then you're sort of left to your own devices at the end to figure it That's out. That's an excellent point. And also, you get there, and the cake is perfect, and everything's ready to go, and you have your little cake decorating wheel thing, and, and then you go, oh, no. Now, I don't have enough. Now what? Now, now what? Yes. Ashley, that's an excellent question. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your help. Yeah. I appreciate it. Whatever help we gave you. <laughs> okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to a special baking episode of Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Cheryl Day's secrets to Southern baking. That's up in just a moment. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do new American cuisine with the emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you always see me at the past making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. Personally, I've always loved seafood, and our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets and uh, we air dry them, so it's nice and crispy. Uh, we do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel, and then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new exciting um, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create. And you don't have to go to the Strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that, you know, that could be a Michelin-star restaurant like Mastry Provisions. It's off the Strip, but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that. <laughs> From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, Experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special episode of Milk Street Radio. Over the last year, I've spent a great deal of time with Cheryl Day. She's answered many of your baking questions on this show, and she and I co-starred in the first season of Milk Street's My Family Recipe, which appears on the Roku channel. 
It all started when I visited Cheryl for Milk Street Television and soon after interviewed her on Milk Street Radio. Here's that interview from October 2021. Cheryl, welcome to Milk Street. Chris, I am so excited to chat with you. I came down to visit you a while back and had a fabulous day. We did. We're still talking about it in Savannah. <laughs> and uh, all I can say in Savannah at Back in the Day Bakery, when you slice a piece of cake, you slice a piece of cake. You don't fool yeah, around. Yeah, we don't mess around. <laughs> so this is a weird question, but I was doing some reading. And uh, somewhere the, the term Valley Girl came up. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going like Cheryl Day Valley Girl. And I, I know you grew up in L.A., but you'll right. spend a lot of time in the South. But um, so are you a valley girl? <laughs> I am a valley girl. True story. <laughs> yeah, I grew up. Um, I spent a lot of my youth in Sherman Oaks, California. There you go. So that officially makes me as valley girl as you can get. I know you You also have deep roots in Alabama. Right. Absolutely. It's this juxtaposition of... Southern California meets the American South, for sure. I'll take the American South any day. <laughs> and I guess you would, too, because you live in Savannah now. Right. So let's talk about your ancestors, because I know in your bakery, there's some just wonderful pictures of your parents and other people there. So let's go back to Hannah Queen Grubbs, who was born in Alabama in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So who was she? Hannah Queen Grubbs was my great-great-grandmother, and yes, she was born enslaved. It's still a little sketchy as to the exact date. I'm still discovering all sorts of things about her now, but yeah, she was born in Alabama and started a legacy of bakers in my family. And I think you said she cooked for a politician at the time, you think? Well, she lived until she was well over 100 years old. So, um, yes, after uh, slavery, she worked for a famous politician in Alabama and was with his family for many, many years. But she was responsible for doing all the cooking in that household. And then your great-grandmother, I guess her daughter, Queen, uh, also was uh, a cook. But she opened a general store in Clopton, Alabama. That's right. In fact, I'm still a little salty over the fact that there were so many queens, ladies named Queen, in my family, and they did not pass it on to me. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned that. It's funny because that was one of the first things we talked about when I visited you. Uh, That that sticks in your craws, they say, right? (laughs) It does. It does. I would have loved that name. Um, So let's go back. You came to Savannah, you started a bakery. I know you tried out recipes in a barbershop. Just tell us the origin story of the Back in the Day Bakery. So, right, the neighborhood that we're in, it's um, it's been coined the Starland District, but basically it's part of the historic district. And at one time it was a thriving business community, the first grocery store in Savannah was owned by a Jewish family and it was across the street from the bakery for many decades. And then the, the neighborhood kind of took a turn as happened, you know, a lot of times in the seventies or what have you. And it became 
um, very transitional, as they say, and it was pretty much a place that no one in their right mind would want to open up a business. <laughs> except but apparently, for. except for uh, except for Griff and I, who we had grown up in large cities, um, and he's from Minneapolis. I'm from Los Angeles, and we really just saw such great potential in this neighborhood. And we started out by really getting to know our neighbors. There's a barber shop, Boys to Men Barber Shop, that's been there, gosh, over 30 years. And we befriended them and started testing out recipes. And once they fell in love with our biscuits and our cinnamon buns and realized that we were opening a business that was wanting to be a part of the neighborhood, they started coming over. And that was really the start of our business. So, yeah, I just think of ways to just really make a human connection. And I think it, I know it's important. You, you talk about cookbooks actually were fronted, if you will, by mostly white women. But as you say, history is written by the victors. And right. so, so many of those recipes obviously came from black cooks. Right. And they ended up in books where they really didn't get any credit. Do you think that was especially true in the South or that's across the country? Or what's your experience with that? Um, well, I mean, I think that it's definitely in the South. That's obviously my wheelhouse. But I know for a fact that it has been the case in other parts of the country as well. In fact, um, it's come out now that one of the first black women that wrote a cookbook, she was in Michigan. Hmm. But, I mean, I think that definitely... You know, a lot of recipes came through the South. And, yeah, unfortunately, if, if you couldn't read or write, I mean, how are you going to tell that story? But they were the ones in the kitchen making the food. So I guess I am making a very bold statement and making sure that I pay homage to these women. Right. So before we get to recipes, with some of these recipes are fascinating, but... Let's talk about baking rules. Um, okay. The one thing that people get wrong more than anything else in baking is the temperature of butter, right? Because it doesn't cream if it's over 70 degrees. So I've been trying to explain this to people for a long time. But if you don't have a thermometer, like an Instarid thermometer, how do you tell people when the butter's at the right temperature for creaming? So I tell people it should have an indentation. It looks not greasy but it's a little bit pliable because it really does make a difference however I have to say um, and I know this is a conversation that's very um, controversial whether you can start with with cold butter but I have discovered over the years that you actually can start with cold cubed butter right but you then have to get it up you know, to temperature. So the only reason why I use that technique sometimes is because in Savannah, Georgia, it's often very hot. <laughs> and in the summer, it's extremely hot. And sometimes it's almost like a reverse method that you, right. you know, that you use to get the butter to the proper temperature, 
rather than getting it too soft where it's melty and then your butter is not going to do be able to do its job. And the question that we actually talked about when I was there, but the, which I think I told you one of my kids used to bake for a living. Yes. And she'd call me all the time and go, Dad, how do I know when it's done? Oh, and, yeah. And I I have about 68 different answers to that question. I bet you do. <laughs> but, but what are your half dozen answers? I think as a baker, if you make things time and time again, it really is about standing there and watching and seeing what happens and making notes and seeing, you know, does it rise? Does it fall? So for cookies, that's kind of my technique for cakes. I definitely, it depends on the type of cake. You know, there's a theory that it does need to come out clean. I think you don't want a cake to be wet, but a little tiny bit of crumb is fine because, again, it's going to continue to bake. Uh, Another way is touching the top to make sure that it, it does bounce back. If you're watching it, you'll see that when it's baking, it starts to pull away from the sides of the pan. It domes. And then you're just kind of, it's this tactile. Baking is very much about, you know, touching and feeling and looking and it's it's using all of your senses well i think you said to me that like 30 seconds in baking is an eternity right i mean i think people don't realize that like a minute is a long time right especially for cookies yeah a minute is like a lifetime (laughs) a minute can be burnt right so let's talk about biscuits uh this is like talking about hummus in the Middle East, right? You want to get into a fight, tell people, you know, the best <laughs> way to make a biscuit, a southern biscuit. So they're, you know, layered biscuits. They're kind of, you know, white lily flower, cakey biscuits. They're mm-hmm. um, all sorts of biscuits, cream biscuits. You you have a bunch of them in your book. Is there a particular style that you think is the southern biscuit or there's just a lot of styles? Well, there's a saying, I think I, I say it in the, cookbook is how many grandmothers are there that's how many biscuits there are I mean you know there's just so many methods I think I have four and I could have gone on and on and I love them all and it just kind of depends there's one method that is really simple and you don't have to cut the biscuits and I think a lot of folks that are Novice bakers love to start with that recipe. I call it a biscone at the bakery, but it's like a cat head biscuit that is really simple to make. You mix it in one bowl and then you scoop it out and you're done. So it's a it's a drop biscuit, essentially. Yeah, essentially it is a, a drop biscuit. I mean, so super simple to make. And then the one that probably I think for my new cookbook, it's like buy the cookbook for the flaky buttermilk biscuits, but stay for the chocolate cake (laughs) (laughs) is, you know, one that is more complex. You're going to be, you know, mixing it. You're going to be cutting it. You're going to be stacking and folding it. And, and that's how you get that very flaky layered biscuit. Cold oven pound cake. I ran across this years ago, but I noticed you have that in the book. So you actually put that into a cold oven, right? And Yeah. And I mean, people look at me like, wait a minute. <laughs> How do you bake a cake in a cold oven? But it starts in a cold oven. Then you turn on the oven 
and I like to just stand there, turn on the light, and stare at it. And it slowly rises so it doesn't get dried out, and the texture of it is just sublime, I think. It's just delicious. Didn't someone tell you when you first moved your cupcakes weren't sweet enough, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I used to, when I, we first opened, I was making a Italian meringue buttercream on my cupcakes, and they were not well-received <laughs> at all. How does a Southerner tell you they don't like your cupcake? Is it subtle? <laughs> Um, I didn't think it was that subtle, actually. It was kind of like, you know, what do you use exactly? <laughs> and, you know, there's the old saying, bless your heart. <laughs> and if you live in the South, you know what that means. <laughs> uh, recipes, um, you, you talk a lot about how recipes were passed down. They were cherished, especially, I think, in the South, but also... I know in New England, I have recipes that were passed down to me. Could you just talk about that? That just seems like such a personal and wonderful thing and probably isn't done very much anymore. Yeah, I think I've always said that bakers are the sweetest folks on earth. And you always want to know the best baker in your community, your, whether it's your aunt or a neighbor or someone that you go to church with. And I know that back in the day, it was a, a big tradition that folks would share a recipe or often they would have these like uh, showers where they would gift recipes to the bride or I don't know. I just think it's just a, a wonderful tradition that I wish we still would do. I actually still do that. I have often gifted a wedding cake or special cakes for occasions and often sad occasions because I think it's just, again, it's just such a human connection that is very important, especially in these days. So we started this conversation with your beginnings in L.A. and also in Alabama. Um, could you give us, I mean, I, I could go on forever about small town Vermont because that's my background, but could you go and, and just explain to us what you deeply love about where you live now? I mean, that makes it so unique. Yeah, I love just the fact that I can hear myself think <laughs> when I walk down the street. I like the fact that people look you in the eye and say hello and, and you get to know people. But I just love um, the pace. I think the pace fits with me at this point in my life. It's just the slower pace, and I rather enjoy it. Was the move from L.A. for you an easy transition? Because you obviously had a lot of family in Alabama for generations. Or I mean, did you feel right at home, or did it take a long time to immerse yourself in Savannah? No, I did not feel right at home. <laughs> um, I did not. <laughs> Um, that's why when we opened the bakery, we wanted to uh, let folks know that we were here to stay and we weren't just coming in, you know. We wanted to be an integral part of the community. and But it definitely took time. I mean, when we first opened, we'd get looks from people trying to figure out, you know, they would say very subtly, you know, oh, are you from here? <laughs> But I talked, you know, I called everyone you guys and I talked a little funny. But so, yeah, I, it definitely took a while. 
but here I am. <laughs> Cheryl, um, great to visit with you again. Love your food and love your new cookbook. Thank you so oh, much. Thanks for having me. That was baker and cookbook author Cheryl Day from Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. Her latest book is Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. You know, Cheryl told me that with the advent of COVID, she and her husband Griff decided to cut back on business and make more time for other things in life. You know, we always talk about time well spent as if time can be spent foolishly. But what if indeed you can't spend time? Time is simply a way for humans to try to understand existence. In that case, every moment is perhaps infinite, and by living in the moment, you never really run out of time. You're listening to a special baking episode of Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman and I get serious about muffins. That's up after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair, which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal, and industrial to Scandi and Boho designs. Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada, You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash MilkStreet, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash MilkStreet for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one Baker story sponsored by Las Vegas. My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. 
It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple. And it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California, and what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang. But also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like, I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see. That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to find the perfect Father's Day card? Dad deserves better than a drugstore card. This year, surprise him with a special personalized card from Moonpig. You can add your favorite photos and a heartfelt message. Plus, no more worrying about stamps or going to the post office, because we'll mail it for you the same day. Every dad deserves a Moonpig card. Get your first card free with code PODCAST at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I'm Christopher Kimball, and this is a special baking episode of Milk Street Radio. Let's now head into the kitchen with Catherine Smart for Maple Whiskey Pudding Cakes. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? You know, back in the early 1970s, Marion Cunningham, she was a famous cookbook author, used to work with Jim Beard, uh, redid the Fanny Farmer books. And one of the recipes I love from that book are pudding cakes. These are old-fashioned recipe. They're magic. You take a cake batter and you take a very thin sauce. You put the cake batter in your container, ramekin, whatever. Pour this thin sauce on top, which looks like it's never going to work. Throw it in the oven. It comes out. The sauce has dropped to the bottom of the ramekin. The cake batter has risen to the top. So you have cake on the top. And at the bottom, you have a sauce, which is now thick. So it changed places and it also thickens. So you get a cake with sauce in the same ramekin or souffle dish. So it's a little magic. And so this is a maple whiskey pudding cake, which is, I think, a lot more interesting than standard lemon or chocolate. So how do we get started? First of all, this cake eats like a warm hug. They were making it in the kitchen the other day, and I stole an entire whiskey cake that I was supposed to just have one bite of. So just a little confessional to start off. And yes, Chris, it is very impressive, and it's a little bit of magic, but it couldn't be more simple. To start, we actually make the sauce 
That's what you do first. And it really is like a brown butter sauce with whiskey and maple syrup and butter. But we actually add a little bit of apple cider vinegar. And that is a nice trick for kind of balancing out the sweetness and cutting through so it doesn't get too cloying. Then you're going to whip together the simplest cake batter. You actually do it in a food processor. And it's just your standard all-purpose flour with some leavener and egg. And you do add a little bit of toasted pecan, which adds both texture and flavor. You put the batter in your oiled ramekins and pour over the sauce, and then it goes right into the oven. These are individual servings. You can make it in a bigger dish, but we like to serve them individually. Individual is best. And then you can, of course, hoard one for the cook, either before or after your guests arrive. It sounds like you don't hoard them. It sounds like you just eat one as soon as it comes out. Of the shameless, oven. Chris. <laughs> You're absolutely shameless. So maple whiskey and pudding cake, it's a little bit of magic. The sauce starts out on top, ends up at the bottom. You get cake and a sauce, and you get individual servings. Catherine, thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for maple whiskey pudding cake at 177milkstreet.com. Next up, it's regular contributor and troublemaker Dan Pashman in a segment from 2018. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you doing? So what are you anxious about this week? Well, I'm not feeling too anxious this week, but I am feeling, you know, it's wintertime, and I have an association with muffins and cold weather. To me, this is muffin season. And muffins are good any time of year, but this is prime muffin-making season. And I have a lot of opinions about muffins. Really? That's really... I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah. yeah. But before we get to the opinions, I have a pop quiz for you. You ready for the pop quiz? Yeah, I'm ready. There are five states that have designated an official state muffin. Now, I'm going to take out Virginia because they copied another state. Sorry, Virginia. So we're, we're down to four now. I'm going to give you the four states, and then I'm going to say a muffin, and you have to match the muffin to the state. Oh, boy. I'm glad this is not for money. Go ahead. (laughs) The states are New York, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and Hawaii. Okay. First muffin, blueberry. Uh, Massachusetts. Uh, Incorrect. Minnesota. Correct. Okay. The third grade class in South Terrace Elementary in Carleton, Minnesota, petitioned to have the blueberry muffin made their state muffin. Next muffin, Chris. All right. The corn muffin. Uh, Corn muffin, Massachusetts. Correct. Okay. What made you say that? Well, because corn was a uh, key ingredient back in the early colonies, and uh, I would think corn would go with Massachusetts. Certainly, probably not with Hawaii. Right. And according to the website of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the school children in the state petitioned the state legislature, and it was made official on May 27th, 1986. Can I see a question? Were any of your kids part of the great corn muffin petition of 1986? Don't these kids have other things to do than petition the state about muffins? I mean, <laughs> It was state pride, Chris. Uh, they were learning about state pride. Should be work on their math. Okay, what's the third one? <laughs> Come on, guys. What's You're like the, the th- muffin Grinch. Yeah, well. Uh, this one should be easy for you, Chris. Apple. The remaining states are New York and Hawaii. New York, and then pineapples, Hawaii, right, or something. Yeah, co- coconut, yeah. A yeah. coconut. Okay, okay, there you go. Okay. Do you share my concern about the cakeification of muffindom, this trend to make muffins more cake-like? Well, y- you and I don't always agree, like, about pizza and some other things, but that's the first thing I thought of when you said muffins. You know, I hate it when they're just little cakes. So if we think of, of all the line of sort of sweet and semi-sweet baked goods, if you think of them along, along a spectrum, and let's say that scones are the, what I think of as the, driest, least sweet, and then cake is at the opposite end of the spectrum. Where in that spectrum should muffins fall, do you think? 
I think you should be uh, – here's, here's what I really think, which is I know what you don't want to hear. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really think muffins should be a base on which you put honey or jam or something else or maybe a little bit of fruit. But I, th- I think muffins should not be that sweet because then there's contrast between the muffin itself and either what you put on it, the butter and the jam, or what you put in it, you know, Lord forbid the chocolate chips or the uh, maybe the blueberries or other things. But I, I think they should be fairly neutral. So, so if a scone is a one and a cake is a hundred, I would say that muffins should be around 35. I was going to say 30. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, right. and matter of fact, I think the corn muffin – is the ultimate example of the perfect muffin because it's really not that sweet and it should be a little coarse. Right. Yeah, you want to have a little bit of grittiness to a good corn muffin, am I right? You do. So if you take cake batter and bake it in a muffin tin, is it still a muffin? Oh, now we're getting existential on me. Uh, No. The question is, is a muffin a shape or is is a muffin a distinct thing in and of itself? Precisely. I think it's the latter, not the former. Okay, I'm with you. And a muffin top is not a muffin either, by the way. I agree. It's not, but, it, but it may be better than a muffin. It may be, but it's not a muffin. Do you eat the whole muffin or just the muffin top? Uh, I, I'm an equal opportunity muffin eater. I like the top with the bottom. I, I don't like either of, on its own. Do you not agree that when you have a muffin where the top has overflowed outside of the muffin tin and you get that ledge, the muffin top ledge, when you get yeah. one of those corner parts of the muffin top ledge yeah. and you break it back and you get that exterior crustiness with a little bit of interior softness. I mean, that is the money bite in a good muffin. Am I right? Dan, the thing I love about talking with you is I have these (laughs) existential arguments about topics I would never in a million years think I would spend more than 10 seconds on. So now we're we're talking about the crispy edge of the muffin top when it overflows, really? Uh, Yeah. No, I— That's one of the most important things to talk about. Nah, nope, nope. I, 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 (laughs) nope. Uh, no. Uh, here, here's what it is. You, you need soft, salted butter. It has to be salted butter. And you need the world's best, like, marmalade honey preserves. And it's, it's, it's three layers. It's, it's the muffin base. It's the very soft, salted butter. And it's the sweet condiment you put on top of that. I think, I think the muffin itself is a conveyance. It's neutral. It's like veal. But it's the stuff on top that really is the is the deal. Why do you put the butter on first and the marmalade second? Well, that's one of the first things I learned in my French cooking school. She told me the key to a great sandwich was butter insulates the bread from the moistness of the filling. Interesting. With a muffin, though, you're not trying to insulate the muffin from the condiment. If anything, you want the condiment to meld and become one with the muffin. So shouldn't no. you invert that order? No, you, you, you want the bright freshness of the jam insulated from the muffin so it doesn't soak into it. <laughs> you got the jam, the butter, the muffin. I mean, it's like, you know, thing one, thing two, thing three. Larry, Moe, and Curly. <laughs> We're all set. How do you slice the muffin before applying those condiments? Because I, I think It, it has to, to be sliced vertically, top to bottom and yes. half. Yes, thank you. That's right. And that's because you need to have muffin top and muffin yes. bottom in every piece. Have you ever tried muffin trifurcation when you slice the muffin in thirds vertically so you get three pieces? No. I'm... <laughs> Here in Boston, it's just in half. Sounds like you need bigger muffins. Well, nah, no. Actually, no. I, I do worry about excessively large muffins, to tell you the truth. But but with muffin trifurcation, you get that middle piece has two exposed interiors, so you could actually butter and marmalade both sides of that middle 
a piece of muffin. Is this an indication of where you and I are going? <laughs> uh, right off the edge into insanity, I think so. Yeah, I have a feeling that you and I are going to end up in a bunker somewhere, Chris, in not too long. We're going to have a case of muffins and some butter and some yeah. marmalade, and we'll sit there with our spreading knives and slowly go insane. Okay, I'll see, I'll see you in the bunker. Um, <laughs> you, you bring the muffins, I'll bring the salted butter and the jam, and uh, thank you. Deal. Happy New Year. That was Dan Pashman. He's the host of the Sporkful podcast, also inventor of the pasta shape, Cascatelli. That's it for today. At Milk Street, we've developed hundreds of recipes for home bakers, from Portuguese sponge cake to tahini swirl brownies. When you become a Milk Street member, you get full access to all of these recipes and every recipe we've developed, along with access to all live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. Just visit 177milkstreet.com to sign up today. You can also find every single one of our podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you find your podcasts. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet, on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.